from KQED. Support for this podcast comes from the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports research and civil dialogue on the deepest questions facing humankind. Learn more at templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Exactly. 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 A conversation series in search of a finer point. Now, here's your host, New York Times bestselling author Kelly Corrigan. I spent the first 10 years of my career at United Way as a fundraiser. I was obsessed. I was a classic, insufferable, 20-something idealist, out to fix problems that to most people seem totally unsolvable. But then, sometimes some things do get better. The ozone, polio, my relationship with my mother. Wouldn't it be nice to understand how? That's what I brought to Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times columnist. Nick is a Rhodes Scholar who's lived on four continents and visited so many corners of the globe they call him the Indiana Jones of journalism. He also, interestingly, has more Twitter followers than Matthew McConaughey. Here he is. So, hi there. Um, I think the best thing to do tonight is to sort of break down the component parts of global change. And I wanted to look at three in particular. Okay. Um, I think the first requirement may be belief. And by belief, I mean, well, for starters, it can be tricky sometimes just to get people to believe there is a problem, right? So I just read recently that more Americans believe in astrology than believe in the connection between climate change and fossil fuel, burning fossil fuels. But let's assume, <laughs> let's assume that rationality eventually prevails the kind of belief I want to talk about is believing in effort over destiny, believing that things are not fixed and permanent. So can you talk a little bit about the role of hope? Um, one of the things that I've seen a lot in reporting, this goes to one of the, the, the things that really troubles me about attitudes towards poverty in America today. It's the empathy gap, if you will, and the sense that we often, I think, have tools to address poverty. But there is this narrative of people who've been successful that um, you know, the poor are essentially to blame for their own poverty. Mm -hmm. And so the wealthiest 20% of Americans actually give less to charity than the poorest 20% as a fraction of incomes. Mm -hmm. And a, um, a, a Princeton psychologist, Susan Fisk, did these astonishing brain scans of successful people looking at the images of people who are homeless, manifestly poor, and found that the successful people process those images as if they're looking not at people, but at things. And I think that's kind of mm -hmm. the, you know, the basis for this empathy gap. And, and there is some element there of you know, truth. It's true that self-destructive pathologies are linked to, uh, to poverty. And um, you know, a lot of the research is incredibly depressing to read if you're, if you have, if you're equipped with a Y chromosome because um, men are incredibly good at spending, al spending money on alcohol, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, yet, if you try to think, 
about how you break these self-destructive pathologies. And then I think hope has emerged as one of these factors that really does um, kind of move the needle. And I think a lot of interventions work not because they're providing a well to a community or providing a cow to a, a family, mm -hmm. but because they give this family a new sense that there can be a different future and that there can mm -hmm. be a better future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that, you know, there both is a poverty trap called hope and that one way of overcoming that is to uh, a poverty trap of, of kind of despair that becomes self-fulfilling right. and that one way of intervening is to provide that little bit of hope. And also, when you're approaching donors and potential board members and you're trying to get, put out the rally cry, if people have given up hope on a certain problem, if you've gotten yeah. to issue fatigue, where well, do you go from there? One of the real problems I think that we as journalists face and that uh, aid groups face is that we leave people depressed. We leave people, you know, we in journalism, we cover planes that crash, not planes that take off. And right. so we leave people with this sense that all planes are always crashing. And uh, aid groups are always trying to raise money by saying how awful things are. And I think that does leave people with a perception that Africa in particular is just this zone of hopelessness where nothing mm -hmm. will ever go right. And the upshot of that is that it uh, deters investment, deters donations, uh, right. deters tourism. And, uh, you know, in fact, I think it's factually mistaken. In fact, there has there has been a lot of progress on global health uh, economically, right. um, and I think that we have to do a better job of figuring out how to acknowledge both the problems of the world and also that backdrop of progress. Right. So how do you? There's two. There's two real hope killers. I think that uh, one is it's a drop in the bucket. Like for instance, there's two billion people are malnourished in the world. So it's really hard to go from that number to yeah. it matters whether I give $1,000 or not. Yeah. And then I'm, a, I'm a believer in drops in the bucket. You know, I really yeah. am. And it's true that we're not going to solve problems right here, but, and that what we do may just be a drop in the bucket. But I'm a believer in drops in the bucket partly because of, uh, can I tell a story? Sure. <laughs> Let me tell you about a um, uh, story of uh, Vladislav Krzysztofowicz, uh, a uh, East European. Everybody say that afternoon. <laughs> Uh, East European refugee, um, it's a Polish name, Vladislav Krzysztofowicz, and ended up in... Again, uh, <laughs> say it. I dare, if one person can say it in here, they get an extra book. <laughs> he uh, he uh, f uh, fled, ended up in a concentration camp in Yugoslavia. Uh, a French diplomat wrote a brief inquiry uh, about him. That was enough for the Yugoslavs uh, two years later when they were releasing some prisoners and executing others to put Krzysztofowicz in the release uh, group. He made his way to Paris, um, couldn't get a work permit, was cleaning hotel rooms, and one of the hotel rooms that he cleaned belonged to uh, an American working for the Marshall Plan. This is late 1940s. And uh, she was impressed by him. She convinced her parents in Portland, Oregon to sponsor his way to come uh, to the US. And, uh, you know, which this is insane, which was insane. I mean, right? she, they didn't know like that him. you would intervene in the life of the guy who cleans your hotel room is and, insane. And her right? parents had never met. I mean, it was uh, right. it was a complete leap of faith, taking risk on somebody. And and it didn't not only was it just a drop in the bucket. I mean, this did not solve the global refugee problem. It didn't make a dent in the global refugee right. problem. Um, but after he got to the U.S., he found that a name like Shishovich with three Zs was kind of hard at the bank. And so we shortened it to Christoph. It's my dad. And uh, so, you know, 
a drop in the bucket. You know, that's how, that's, at the end of the day, that's how you fill buckets. Yep, yep. The other um, total hope killer is corruption. And they're just these moments where we're humming along and people are believing again and feeling optimistic and feeling that together if we link arms and we all put our drop in the bucket that the bucket might someday be filled. And then the whole thing gets undercut because one person pulls a wrong move. How do you come back from that? You know, these, these are real issues. And I, I think that enthusiasts sometimes make the mistake of kind of trying to deny these issues. And I guess what I would say is that these problems are real. And corruption is real. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody who has traveled has seen programs that have been wasted. You can build a well, uh, but there are washers that go in that pump. And those washers will wear out in about 18 months, unless there is some mechanism, some model to repair it, to sustain it then after 18 months, that investment is going to be lost. And anybody who's mm -hmm. seen these projects mm -hmm. has seen that kind of waste. Mm -hmm. But the point is that anybody who has seen, has traveled, has mm -hmm. also seen wells that have been built with a sustainable element in them that work for 30 years and save lives in that village year after year after year. Or mm -hmm. can I tell another story? Sure. <laughs> I love that so, I'm in charge. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so um, years ago, way back 1990, uh, my wife co-author, Cheryl Wudan and I, we were writing about the problem of girls having to drop out of school in China because they're girls, because their parents don't want to invest in a daughter's education. We uh, chose as the poster child of this phenomenon this incredibly brilliant girl in Hubei province, the Dabia Mountains, uh, Dai Manjut, and uh, she was the brightest kid in school and had to drop out in the sixth grade for one of $13. We wrote an article about her in the Which front page of the New York Times. Which could also be called a drop in the bucket. Totally a drop right? in the bucket. And because we ran her picture three columns across the front page of the New York Times, everybody wanted to help her. We were then deluged with, uh, this is 1990, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't emails, but it was with uh, mail and, and, and checks for $13 from readers. New York Times readers are incredibly generous in $13 increments. <laughs> um, but it's like we, our bat mitzvah or something, right? <laughs> We also got a wire transfer from one reader in New York uh, for $10,000. And we took all this money down to this school, worked out a deal whereby that money would be used to keep girls in school in this one little village uh, so that if they could make the grade, they could, wouldn't have to pay school fees, could stay in as long as they could make it. And uh, then we called up the donor of the $10,000 and told him that he had this transformative impact. And he, he said, uh, $10,000? I only sent $100. It turns out that the bank had made a, had had a little trouble with that decimal point. Um, it, no. I know, I, I just delivered this money and I, and I, I called up the, I called up the bank. Uh, um, and, I got uh, 73 bucks in my pocket. Yeah. You guys got anything? <laughs> well, they were, they were kind of helpful because I, I just, I was very blunt. I laid out the problem. I explained they'd make this mistake. They're probably going to correct it at the end of the month, end of the quarter. And then I, let slip that I was uh, working on a follow-up article. <laughs> and it was pretty amazing. They said, yeah. you know what? Um, on the record, um, yeah. we won't ask for that $9,900 $9, back. We'll make it a gift. And uh, Well uh, done, you. Well <laughs> done, you. But, uh, 
but uh, the point is that was 1990, and so we've been able to follow those villages. And if you go back to that village right now today, then obviously all of Hubei province, all of China has become more prosperous. That village, so much more so than all of those around it, mm -hmm. because those girls then got an education. They ended up going to university, getting good jobs, plowing that money back into that village. And so uh, 25 years later, that village is far more prosperous in ways that benefited the men as well as the women in that village because of a one-time error by a banker 25 mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. That's the mm -hmm. power of girls' education, mm -hmm. the power of investment. Okay, so I want to I want to talk about empathy. The first thing I want to say that's kind of interesting I hadn't thought about before is that when you have worked in many places, for-profits and non-profits, and you see all the mistakes that, that for-profits make right. and all the waste in for-profits, then it's sort of amazing that you would be holier than thou and high and mighty about the mistakes and waste that nonprofits make. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And this takes you to this other angle on empathy. But empathy is chapter two, which is um, so core to what you're trying to engender in people. So can you talk about exactly how we combat otherizing? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, we've had a an attempt at a conversation about race in this country. Uh, more broadly, I think we, and it has to do with otherizing people who were somewhat different from us. And I think this has deep ev roots in evolutionary biology that we are programmed to, uh, children are programmed very quickly to label, to determine whether somebody is the in-group or the out-group. And this was useful in evolutionary times to be able to figure out. I have a 13-year-old daughter. She knows a lot she, about this. <laughs> Well, you know, it was helpful in evolutionary times, uh, but that becomes an obstacle in mm -hmm. compassion. And I am so struck that, um, you know, there, one of the narratives that has been really unhelpful is the narrative of personal irresponsibility. And people perceive mm -hmm. poverty as all about irresponsibility. And, you know, there is an element to that. 30% of American uh, teenage girls become pregnant by age 19. So. I don't deny that there is an element of irresponsibility there among the boys and the girls. Uh, but when we have the tools in the society, proven tools, to intervene and make a difference and lower that uh, teenage pregnancy rate, European kids have sex at about the same rate as American kids. They get pregnant about one quarter the rate. Why is that? They have comprehensive sex education. They have long-acting reversible contraceptives available and providing long-acting reversible contraceptives to at-risk teenage girls pays for itself more than seven times over, uh, partly because you're not paying $12,000 for each Medicaid birth. And so here we have something that would be so important just as a social justice issue, pays for itself seven times over, and yet we don't do it. And uh, you know that, that seems to me to reflect a profound personal irresponsibility on the part of all of us. Mm -hmm. So as long as we're talking about, let's have that conversation about personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Let's also have a conversation about our responsibility mm -hmm. in implementing tools and techniques that will work, that will empower people, that will create opportunity, mm -hmm. and that will even save money doing it. And that hinges on empathy. You're listening to Exactly on KQED Public Radio. We'll be back after a break. Support for this podcast comes from the John Templeton Foundation, 
The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions concerning the cosmos, human purpose, and the divine. Learn more at templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. This program was recorded live at Medium, the place to share stories and ideas that matter most to you. If you're enjoying this conversation, you'll definitely like my talk with actor and screenwriter Jason Siegel. Everyone around you is telling you, here's how it goes. Elementary school is going to bring you to junior high, to high school, start figuring out what you're good at, because then you're going to do that for like 50 or 60 right. years. If you pay attention, there's these other voices that creep up and say, no, there's magic. That's actor and screenwriter Jason Siegel on our podcast at kqed.org slash exactly or on iTunes. Welcome back to Exactly. I'm Kelly Corrigan with journalist Nicholas Kristoff. Pretty much every girl I know had sex by the time she was 19, even the girls who were going to Harvard. So the fact that we're ready to judge people who are having sex at a young age and not seeing ourselves in that story is this total breakdown of empathy. Or it's the same thing. I was just reading um, Brian Stevenson. He said that every single child 13 or 14 years old sentenced to life without parole for a non-homicide, every single one has been of color. Right. Which got me thinking back to myself at that same age, which in one kind of bang up year of high school, I got caught shoplifting. I got suspended from school. I got arrested for underage drinking. <laughs> And I was fired from my job making pizzas for low standards and general laziness. Wow. And here gonna... I am, sitting with a guy who won two Pulitzers. <laughs> yeah. We but have everybody's going to forgive me. Right. And everybody believes that even though I'm making this mistake after mistake after mistake, like she's still going in the right direction. God help the kid we have who makes that net. same set of mistakes. Right. Polling suggests that whites and blacks, for example, use uh, drugs at approximately the same rate. However, blacks get arrested four times the rate that whites do for, for those offenses. Yeah. And you know, we have a safety net that it, we just kind of assume and that exists. Right. And um, so I do think that what we need right now is not so much the tools to intervene and create opportunity, mm -hmm. but it's the political will. And that depends upon empathy. And right. uh, you know, judges who have had daughters are more likely to rule for women's rights uh, than judges who don't mm -hmm. have daughters. Mm -hmm. uh, I think gay rights made huge strides when suddenly Every straight American realized that their brother or cousin or best mm -hmm. buddy was mm -hmm. gay it, when mm -hmm. it, we had a human face on it. And I think that one of the problems is that if you, have, or if you were successful in America today, you probably don't know a lot of people who are struggling. Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes easy to carve this narrative mm -hmm. about personal irresponsibility mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of, and turn aside. So what, what do you use to help people over the hump? Storytelling. Now, 75% of Caucasian Americans don't have a single black friend. Um, what percent? 75%, uh, one study. And uh, I think that in that context, if you don't know any blacks, mm -hmm. then it is easy to think, oh, there's no problem with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But if you actually, I mean, I, I, was, I was very struck when, you know, one black friend was telling me how he never 
he always holds on to the receipt every time he leaves the store, and it's something I would never think of. Uh, what happened was he, he recently married a, a, a white woman, and uh, they were making a purchase together at a department store, and they bought something. She tossed out the receipt, and he was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, but it's, right. uh, TV, I think, can, when we don't make these connections in our own lives, which would be most helpful, then TV, storytelling, there's been work that literature opens up, mm -hmm. uh, bonds of empathy as well. Mm -hmm. There's a couple really weird things about the brain and empathy. So you were saying at one point in the book that people are more willing to give to an individual than to a group, so much so that when they did this test, that you, people would be more willing to give $300,000 to save one child than they would to give $300,000 to save eight children. And then they talked a little bit about how um, when you try to galvanize a movement, if you were to say free political prisoners, nothing. Doesn't work. Crickets. You say free Mandela, and it takes off. Global the original movement. slogan uh, was uh, free South African political prisoners. And then they realized that you need a human face on this. You need an individual. Yeah. Um, and you know, this has greatly shaped my own reporting. Mm -hmm. Because you always start with trying to give us a story of one person. What happened was I, I was writing about Darfur, and it was really frustrating because my columns were kind of disappearing without a ripple. And then that same time in New York, there were these two hawks in Central Park. They'd been kicked out of their, they had a nest in an apartment building right next to Central Park, and the apartment building didn't like the bird dropping, so kicked them out of their, of the building. And all of New York just, went abuzz about these two poor homeless hawks. And I thought, how is it that I can't generate the same outrage about hundreds of thousands of people being slaughtered? What's wrong with my reporting? And um, then I realized, and so that led me to the research of Paul Slovic, one of the people yeah. we, we cite. Uh, and it turns out that it's about, it's an emotional connection, not a rational connection. It's an emotional connection to an individual story. That's what builds though, that's what builds empathy. Yeah. And so, you know, ever since then, I've been telling a lot of individual stories. I think you are the most sophisticated, informed optimist on the planet. And I think optimism I'm, is often ascribed to people who don't know better. Um, so how do you keep that alive? I'm a, I'm a battle-scarred optimist. And, right on. Um, you know, uh, part of it is that I've seen real progress over time. So when I first traveled uh, in Africa, the thing that really bothered me the most was uh, blindness. You see so many middle-aged mm -hmm. people who are blind from cataracts, from trachoma, from river blindness, needlessly. They have to pull a kid out of school to lead them around. Mm. Some of these, trachoma is incredibly painful as well. It's an excruciating way to go blind. These days, they haven't been eliminated, but they are hugely, hugely reduced. We write about trachoma. Uh, for $40, we, we saw a, a, a surgery to repair trachiasis, the, the result of trachoma, give a woman her sight back for $40, a 20-minute operation by a, a nurse. And to think that what is possible for $40, you know, that one can do that, it's pretty inspiring. And to see that mm -hmm. woman then, after the surgery, uh, one of the aides said, uh, you know, do you need some help getting back to your home? And she pushed him out of his way and said, get out of the way. I'm walking home. I can yeah. see. And, you know, that is inspiring and exciting. Um, and, you know, I've truly seen that in that 
that there is this backdrop of improvement. And I guess the other thing is that in my reporting, I've seen some terrible atrocities, but side by side with the worst of humanity, you tend to see the very best. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Congo, most lethal conflict since World War II, rape capital of the world. One trip, I met a warlord who was brutalizing the population, and you know, I, I could have, I mean, uh, I could have really slaughtered him if it wouldn't have undermined my reputation as a humanitarian. Um, but um, I think the second Pulitzer wouldn't have come. <laughs> but uh, and he left an impression. But so, but even more, maybe the biggest impression I had from that trip was this amazing Polish nun who had stayed there when every other aid worker had fled, who was single-handedly trying to feed the kids, run an emergency feeding station, run a school, negotiate with the warlord to keep his troops out of bay, and was this stunning example of what humans are capable of in terms of courage, decency, altruism. And so I came back from war-torn Congo actually you know, with a skip in my step feeling better about humanity. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? Um, B.J. Novak came, and he said this really interesting thing, and I wonder what you have to say about it, uh, since you are so close to these issues, and we are typically so far from them. And I mean that in a literal, physical way. Um, what he said when I asked him if he could fix one thing, what would it be? He said, I would like to see fix the gap between our very major and admirable instinct to help people and the very minor part of our life that it is. I think there's got to be a great way to harness the enormous charitable instinct within people that can be easily manipulated if you're sitting this close, but almost evaporates once you're more than 10 feet away. That's why I'm a great believer in, in service projects. You know, I started out sort of cynical of them because you know, you see, how do you build empathy? I kind of think it's about kids. And um, I, I remember hearing about one uh, clinic in Mexico that was uh, painted six times over the course of one summer by oh, <laughs> successive dear. armies of high school students out to uh, oh, show dear. their bona fides. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, even if that didn't do much for that clinic, I think that for those kids mm -hmm. to be exposed to uh, disadvantage, to see people who didn't do as well in that you know, ovarian lottery, I think that is important and hopefully may build a certain element, uh, may narrow that distance that you talk about mm -hmm. just a little bit and create mm -hmm. a constituency for trying to help others. It's just been a total honor to talk to you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you so much. That was so great. Thanks a lot. So Nick Kristoff is so insightful and so articulate, I almost just wanted to get a yellow highlighter and go nuts on the transcript. But my big exactly moment was great progress, was the world changes in the tiniest increments imaginable. One $40 eye surgery at a time, and eventually a country is no longer blind. That's something to remember. Thanks for coming with me today. Please be in touch, and I'll talk to you soon. This is Exactly, produced by KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. The program was recorded live at Medium, the place to share stories and ideas that matter most to you. If you enjoyed this conversation, definitely check out my talk with screenwriter and actor Jason Siegel about the imposter syndrome and success fantasies. There is a theme that runs through a lot of things that really have inspired me. 
someone is going to come along and say, wait a minute, there's been a mistake. You don't belong here. You are meant for something bigger. I think that's everybody's dream. You can hear more from Jason Siegel and other guests on our podcast at kqed.org slash exactly or on iTunes. Thanks to our team, producers Kat Snow and Anna Adlerstein, coordinating producer Melissa Williams, engineer Jim Bennett, production manager Jennifer Harrison, and executive producer Michael Issop. I'm Kelly Corrigan. Thank you so much for listening, and please be in touch. Thank you.